Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. I must step down as your speaker. Anthony Rota introduced Yaroslav Hunka as a war hero. He was fighting on the side of the Nazis. Why should they get a free pass to run away to a great democracy like Canada? He should be simply prosecuted. A blunder in the house. The celebration of a former Nazi fighter degrades and offends. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Fierce fighting, modest gains. The Ukrainians encountered stiffer defense than what they anticipated. Was Ukraine's spring offensive a failure? The art of the beatdown. We have to just find what makes it safe and then make it nice and brutal. Why the fights in the new John Wick prequel hit so hard. And touched by Tay-Tay. I turned into a Swifty at that moment. A former football star gets swallowed by a whole new kind of fame. All today on Day 6, the Taylor Taylor Burning Bright edition. It's with a heavy heart that I rise to inform members of my resignation as Speaker of the House of Commons. House of Commons Speaker Anthony Rhoda stepped down from his post this week following a blunder in the House of Commons last Friday. Rhoda had invited a 98-year-old war veteran to the House, where he was honored as a hero in the presence of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. It turns out the veteran, Yaroslav Honka, had fought in the Waffen-SS Nazi division. The incident has angered and embarrassed a lot of people in Canada, and it's provoked international outrage. The Polish education minister now is asking for the extradition of this 98-year-old military veteran to Poland to face uh, charges on war crimes. The prime minister has since apologized, but what happened last week now raises another question. How many people who fought in the Nazi SS division made it to Canada? And how did they get to stay here? Bernie Farber is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and the former CEO of the Canadian Jewish Congress. He is also the son of a Holocaust survivor. Bernie, good morning. Welcome back to Day 6. Thanks for having me. What was your reaction last week to seeing Yaroslav Hanka hailed as a hero and applauded in the House of Commons? It literally made me sick to my stomach. And I, I have to qualify that by, uh, by letting you know that I have a personal stake in this. I am the son of a Holocaust survivor. My father was the sole Jewish survivor of his small town on the Ukrainian-Polish border called Bochka. Out of 750 Jews, including his wife, his two children, brothers and sisters, cousins, friends, aunts, he was the only one to have survived. Uh, they were all murdered in the Treblinka death camp by members of the Waffen-SS. So um, to see a member of the Waffen-SS applauded and uh, lauded in my House of Commons, I was outraged. We know about Mr. Hunka because of this blunder now, but how many other fighters from the Waffen-SS made it to Canada after the war? Well, what we have in terms of a historical record, and it's been documented by historians like Irving Abella, 
later Ringabella and Howard Margolian and others, best they can figure is about 2,000 uh, came into Canada between 1946 and probably 1954. And they walked in as free people, knowingly. The Canadian government knowingly allowed them in. It was a, a huge issue, but nobody really gave a darn back then. And uh, even up until 19, in the, into the 1980s, uh, when finally the government of Canada uh, decided to take a look into how and if Nazi war criminals came into Canada, that was many years already after the war and, and uh, the establishment then of the Duchesne Commission. The Duchesne Commission actually exonerated uh, this particular uh, Waffen-SS unit, the Galizia 14th Division, as they are known. And the Duchesne Commission also declined to look into what they may have committed individually in, in, in the time that they were in the Waffen-SS as well. Why was there this, 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 this sense that they had to be protected somehow? I'm not sure if there was a sense that they had to be protected or if there was more, it was more a matter of protecting our, our own reputations. After the war, this division actually surrendered to the British Army, and the vast majority of them actually ended up in Britain. Britain then assured Canada that they had looked into the, uh, the workings of this uh, particular unit and that they did not commit war crimes. Many of us and many historians questioned that. But you know what, Brent, in the, in, in the, in the, in the long run, it really doesn't matter. Because the issue for, for us now is that Mr. Hunka was a member of the Waffen-SS. It's as simple as that. It was a, a Nazi unit, part of the SS Third Reich war machine, and uh, they swore a blood oath to Adolf Hitler. But in 2023, should somebody introduce a soldier with Mr. Honka's background into, in the Canadian parliament, shouldn't the most rudimentary vetting have uncovered something about his history? Undeniably, and you really didn't even need rudimentary vetting. Uh, I listened very carefully to uh, Speaker Roca's, uh, uh, Rota's in introduction uh, of Mr. Honka, and it, it, he was very clear. He said that he was a Ukrainian national, a hero who fought uh, against the Soviets from 1941 to 1945. Well, from 1941 to 1945, the Soviets were our allies against the Nazis. Mm -hmm. The only ones that were fighting uh, the Russians and or the Soviets at that time, uh, you know, were Nazis. This was a terrible lesson in the fact that we are ahistorical here in this mm -hmm. country. And by the way, 300 educated men and women from all walks of life, doctors and lawyers and teachers, stood up after hearing this introduction. It didn't twig on anyone. But was that explanation that this was a unit that was fighting against the Soviets, was that used historically in the years following the repatriation of these soldiers as a way of whitewashing their history? Is it something that they, that, that, that they cited very often to deflect? Of course, uh, of course they did. And, uh, you know, their, their excuse was we were Ukrainian nationals and we had a choice between Hitler and Stalin. Um, and, and Stalin subjugated us, you know, for decades mm -hmm. and the Russians subjugated us for decades. So we made a choice, a blood choice, and we decided to fight you know, for our country. It doesn't wash. It, it doesn't wash. I mean, the bottom line is they fought on, on behalf of the Nazi regime, the most murderous regime of the 20th century, in, in my view. And uh, that, the, the, the group that Mr. Hunka belonged to, the Waffen-SS, no matter what you name them, they, and they tried to change names, uh, the Waffen-SS were responsible for the murders of 
my two half brothers and my entire paternal family. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be looking at their history to determine what is right and what is wrong. Uh, and that this happened in this country in 2023 is absolutely outlandish. The Waffen-SS has been honored by monuments in Canada that still exist, that still stand to this day. And you've written about those monuments. I have. What can you tell us about them? Well, there are two monuments. One is in Oakville, Ontario, in a private uh, cemetery uh, owned by uh, a Ukrainian-Canadian organization. And similarly, the other one is in Edmonton. And they are monuments that actually honor this very division that Mr. Honka uh, fought with, that they are on our, uh, our land. I think as citizens of this country, we do have something to say about it. Uh, I know that this is going to be a, a, a difficult and complex matter for the Ukrainian-Canadian community. But look, we've been struggling ourselves here in Canada as, as Canadians, whether we're Ukrainian or Jewish or Latvian or French or what have you, with the whole issue of statues regarding Sir John, Sir John A. Macdonald, Prime Minister of Canada. We have reinterpreted and re-understood history and have started to take down monuments and statues of Sir John A. Macdonald because of his... Uh, uh, efforts in, in the genocide of First Nations people. Mm-hmm. Uh, surely, surely a monument that honors Nazis in this country uh, can be easily taken down if we just all work together and do the right thing. You said earlier in a conversation that when these men were brought into Canada in the 1940s and the early 1950s, nobody gave a damn. But what did your father think? Was he aware that these Nazis were in the, in the country? My father owned a small grocery store in Ottawa, in, in Sandy Hill, uh, where, the, where the University of Ottawa now stands. It was kind of the multicultural hub before multiculturalism became a thing uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and my father, because he was European himself, and one of the things he did fighting with the uh, Russian partisans during the war, uh, was he spoke many languages, Ukrainian, Russian, Polish, German, uh, and so uh, all of these uh, new immigrants would come to my father's store and uh, and shop there. And my father would say once in a while after speaking with one of the customers, he said, you see that person there? He probably killed Jews. And I remember this as clear as a bell. And I thought, and I said to him as a child, well, how, how can you do this? He says, well, I'm, I'm in Canada now, and I have to figure out how to move forward. He said, the only real justice that this man is going to receive, and I would say the same today of Mr. Hunka, is that he has been exposed for the world to see who he is and what he did. That's the only real justice. Bernie Farber, the Speaker of the House has now resigned. The Prime Minister has apologized. What's the lesson you think that we should take away from all of this? The lesson is that we don't know enough, that we are not connected enough to our history, uh, that we that we all should have known this well before it happened, from, from the Speaker to everybody else on the floor. And so education is the key uh, lesson that we take away from this. Bernie Farber, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Brent, very much for having me. Bernie Farber is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and the son of a Holocaust survivor. Still to come, even seasoned stars lose their cool when Taylor Swift walks into their world. Oh no, she's coming around the corner. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. And this, this is nothing. There'll be another blockade. We'll do whatever we have to do to keep this cause alive. This is bigger than just us here. 
A new barricade went up this week at Winnipeg's Brady Road landfill, two months after a blockade there was taken down by police. Protesters are calling for a search of the Prairie Green landfill north of Winnipeg for the remains of two First Nations women. Police believe the remains of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron, both thought to be victims of an alleged serial killer, were taken to that landfill last year. The province's progressive conservatives are now campaigning on their promise not to search the landfill. Manitoba's provincial election is on Tuesday. And for more on this, it's time for a closer look. Late night TV talk shows are on their way back following the end of the Hollywood writer's strike. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Seth Meyers, and Stephen Colbert will all be back on air on Monday. John Oliver returns tomorrow. The Daily Show is back October 16th. The leadership of the Writers Guild of America voted unanimously in favor of an agreement with television and movie producers. The deal still has to be ratified by the union's membership, and the voting starts on Monday. Meanwhile, the Actors Union remains on strike, but the union and the studios have announced they'll be back at the bargaining table on Monday. Still to come on day six, the fights in the John Wick prequel are faster than ever. We go inside the slow, meticulous process of making them happen. A gun's going at him and he ducks and a bullet hits the wall. Taylor Swift attends football game was literally the headline of the day. Taylor Swift was spotted at the Kansas City Chiefs game against the Chicago Bears. Now they got the biggest star on earth in their suite, dating their best. What are we talking? The Kansas City Chiefs are about to win the Super Bowl game. Yeah. Yep. And it's all because of Taylor Swift. Hear that? Time to call a bookmaker. Well, in case you hadn't heard, Taylor Swift went to a football game this week. Oh, and she might be in a new relationship with podcaster Travis Kelsey, who also happens to be a two-time Super Bowl winner, eight-time Pro Bowler, and a tight end with Kansas City's NFL team. Their budding possible relationship may have been mentioned a few thousand times. And there have been rumors for a few weeks. Then on Sunday, Taylor Swift appeared at the game between Kansas City and Chicago, sitting in a luxury suite next to Travis Kelsey's mom. And after the game, the two of them were caught on camera, leaving the stadium together. Hey, how you doing? Needless to say, that video has now gone viral. Apparently, the photographer that spotted them is doing incredibly well. That photographer? That was Jarrett Payton. He is a sports anchor for WGN in Chicago. He's also the son of the late legendary Chicago Bears running back, Walter Payton. My dad, and when it comes to the NFL, they say my dad's a big deal, which uh, he truly was. And Jarrett is no slouch himself. He also played professional football, including in the CFL. Got a chance to play in the NFL with the Tennessee Titans for two years. Then after that, I went up to the CFL and played in Montreal with the uh, Alouettes for a season. And then I played in Toronto with the Argonauts for a season in 2009. Last Sunday, Jarrett was at the game in Kansas City covering his hometown team, the Bears. And as soon as he arrived, he knew something was up. Once my family pulled into the parking lot at Arrowhead Stadium, we pulled into like this separate like back road and a police officer drove us in to where we needed to go into the, the boxes, like to the suite area. And so as we're going through the parking lot, the police is taking us through where a lot of people are tailgating, having a good time. People thought we were like Taylor Swift coming in to 
the stadium. Everybody's looking. Who is that? Who is that? Who's getting out? They got a police escort. Who is that? And we got out of the car. Like everyone was looking. And by that time, we started to find out that Taylor was coming to the game. And so it was just this buzz around the stadium that she was going to be in the building and everyone was keeping their eyes out for it. He was there to cover the Bears, but they haven't been great this year. In fact, they haven't even won a game. So Jarrett started to look for other interesting things to do during the game. And he tweeted that his goal for the day was to find Taylor Swift. Our family, where we were sitting, was on a different level than she was. So I knew it was going to be tough. And then after that post on X, I saw her in the box and I filmed her like kind of where she was. And I thought that that was it. Like that was, that was going to be it. And that was cool. And then I kind of left it and forgot about it. And that was cool. But Jarrett had no idea that it was about to get a lot cooler. After the game, he was down near the team locker rooms doing interviews. And then his driver texted to say his ride was there. So Jarrett started walking toward the elevator. Oh, it was unbelievable. I, I get about, I would say 50 feet and I'm right outside of the Chiefs locker room and the security guard for the Chiefs came around the corner and he stops me and he goes, where are you going? And I said, um, I'm going to my car. Can I go this way, sir? And he goes, yes, you can, but stay right here. Don't move. So I just was like, okay. Now, by the time that happened, I saw two Kelsey jerseys walk by and there was a young man that was standing next to Taylor in some of the videos I was seeing during the game with this black shirt on and a hat. And he walked by and as soon as that happened, it triggered like, oh no, she's coming around the corner. Like they, her and Travis are about to walk around the corner and I could hear her voice like laughing. So in that moment, when they walked around the corner, Travis and Taylor, I flip on my phone and the camera's already ready to go. And all I did was press record and I made sure that I didn't cut her head off or his head off in the photo. So perfect frame and got them. And that's uh, that's how I got the video. And remember, Jarrett's been around a lot of famous people in his time. He's the son of Walter Payton and a former pro football player himself. And remember the guy who played Cam from Modern Family? Jarrett was at the game sitting in his private box. But still, when Taylor Swift said hey to Jarrett, well, he got a little excited. <laughs> when she said hey to me, I turned into a Swifty at that moment. I felt like I was in fifth grade because my voice got so high pitched because I was like, I was stunned. I knew that I captured something cool, but it was just cool to see them together. And I just was like, holy cow, like she just walked by. Hey, How you doing? So far, Jared's video of Taylor and Travis leaving the stadium has had more than 16 million views. And for a lot of people, the fact that Travis and Taylor were filmed leaving together sealed the deal that they were a couple. And Jarrett's life got a little crazy. Once I posted it, everything changed. People have been, that I have never talked to, people from different countries hitting me up. You know, I mean, I think I've gotten close to 10,000 followers and counting on all, across all platforms. And people are getting to know me that, Listen, when it comes to the NFL, for Swifties who might not know the game of football, but now we're going to watch football because of Travis and Taylor's relationship, that it's only fitting that one of the best football players to ever play the game, his son, 
and people call us NFL royalty, our family, that I got that video of her and him together. Like, it made it all perfect. Jared Payton is the guy who filmed Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey leaving Arrowhead Stadium on Sunday. He's also a former pro football player, the son of Walter Payton, and a sports anchor for WGN in Chicago. We're up against here, Winston. Cormac isn't the same guy you knew when we were kids. He's bigger than goons or bookies or broken fingers. And he's part of this criminal world that expands beyond that hotel, beyond your city, and beyond your imagination. That's a clip from the new miniseries, The Continental, which is set in the same universe as the John Wick action films. The John Wick movies take place more or less in the present day, but The Continental is a prequel set in the 1970s. Ascots are in, disco is still alive, and New York's seedy side is not yet confined to the underbelly. Nowhere is that more apparent than in the Continental Hotel, a sort of safe haven for the world's deadliest assassins. But thanks to Winston Scott, played by Colin Woodell, that haven is about to become a lot less safe. We kill Cormac, taking his damn house and everything that comes with it. A takeover of the whole hotel? How are we supposed to believe a guy in an ascot can pull this off? It's a cravat. The Continental doesn't feature Keanu Reeves, who plays John Wick in the franchise, but the John Wick vibe is clear and strong, especially in the meticulously choreographed high-adrenaline fight scenes. Like this one, where Frankie, played by Ben Robson, fights his way up a tight stairwell packed with gun-toting goons who want him dead. Red light active. The stairwell fight scene also sets the tone for the series. Friendship, deception, betrayal, lots of bullet play and violence, more of a beautiful chaos. Larnell Stovall is the action director for the Continental, so he was the one in charge of making sure the fights look as cool as possible. Larnell, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can we talk about the stairwell fight? (laughs) The stairwell fight, yeah. I will say this. That was a great experience because we knew coming out the gate we had to start off strong. Um, There's a high expectation from the John Wick fan base to John Wick world. So we knew that in the first 10, 15 minutes maximum, we had to capture the audience's attention and give them something familiar, but yet... Um, make sure it reflected the time frame we're in, which is the 1970s. So that was a, a tough one. But once it came together, our actor stepped in. He had a short boot camp, I would say, of maybe three, three and a half weeks maximum to learn that entire sequence. And um, we had to shoot that fight scene in one day. Yeah. Wow. So, but that, that was just about precision, great teamwork, uh, some awesome rehearsals tweaking things to make sure we made the most of our time. But yeah, I think it came together pretty well. In in one sentence or less, how do you describe the action? What's happening in the story that leads to that, Mm -hmm. to that fest of bullets and, 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 and blood and death? Oof. Um, I'm going to say friendship, deception, betrayal, and, uh, chase, you know, those are all highlighted themes 
that lead to that. You know, Cormac uh, trusting Frankie, Frankie taking his friendship and mentorship and having his own purpose for it. And obviously the deception comes in by stealing the coin press, which leads to uh, lots of bullet play and violence, more of a beautiful chaos. So you shot this in one day, but how many days did you spend figuring out what was going to happen, planning it out and storyboarding it? Yeah, that takes a little time. We sit down and we talk about where do we want to head with this? What do we want to see? How long do we want the sequence to be? Because, you know, um, one thing Albert Hughes, our director, is keen on is not overstaying our welcome. You don't want to give the audience action fatigue in the very beginning. You want them to want more. We had weeks of discussing it. And then the team and myself between the U.S. team and the Budapest team would get together in the gym, choreographed versions of the sequence for each level. Once we found out how many stairs or levels we're trying to climb, we say, well, what's level one, level two, level three? And then we kind of time it. We mm-hmm. shoot a version of it. We put sound effects. We edit it. Uh, we actually shot it in that same stairwell so people can honestly see what's going to happen in the actual space. The director signs off on it. And then from there, we teach the actor. But I would say, yeah, it was about a, a month and a half process maximum. So, so Ben Robson plays Frankie. He's the actor. Mm-hmm. He's being attacked by some of the most accomplished martial arts stunt people in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Were you ever worried that he wouldn't be convincing in that scene? Because he is. He holds his own. Yeah. It's always tough because you don't know what's going to happen in the beginning once someone gets cast. Each time you get with them, you're gauging, you're analyzing, you're building trust, you're developing their confidence, and also they're they're making you more confident in the product because you're like, oh, wait a second, this might work, or ooh, we might have to make some adjustments. <laughs> but, um, you know, Ben stepped in, was game. Um, we adjusted because he's 6'4", you know, so some things may work for someone like myself who's shorter, <laughs> you know, as to where... Someone taller like him, the distance, the range, the movement, you know, so with all those adjustments uh, and him fighting these guys, we have to just find what makes it safe and then make it nice and brutal. Hmm. So, so there's a 40 second part of the fight that seems to be one shot. So you have the super kinetic scene with multiple assassins coming in, people mm-hmm. getting off, people being thrown around. What is the value of a long shot in, in, a, in a scene like that? I think the value is it keeps the audience connected. It feels like you're a part of it. You know, with anything, we want to build drama. We want to build tension. We want you to be on the edge of your seat. And I think the more you cut away from that, the more you feel like you're in a movie again. But the more you stay present within the action, like if he's turning left, you have to turn left with him. If a gun's mm-hmm. going at him and he ducks and a bullet hits the wall and he has to look up and the camera looks up as well, you feel like you're in it with him. So you're reacting with him at the same time versus being ahead of him because audiences are very smart these days. I want you to remember what you're watching. You know, look, there's so much action these days. There's so many great franchises, new TV shows, um, series, different things coming out. And, you know, everybody's doing good stuff these days. But, mm-hmm. you know, coming from this world, there is an expectation of longer water shots, trying to see the actors do the majority of it. So we wanted to stick to that principle and make sure you feel the wickish vibe by saying, oh, okay, I see what y'all going for. And this was a great chance to uh, set off Mark in that area. 
So, so the four John Wick movies take place more or less in the present day. The Continental is set firmly in the 1970s. Did yes. you have to translate Wick-style fights and action to an earlier time period? So, you know, the evolution of the, of the fighting was different. Exactly, exactly. In fact, if you notice, there is somewhat of what you can call gun fu, but we avoided um, any advanced techniques on purpose because we wanted to make sure the audience saw that we wanted to show there's a place to go and evolve with this style. I mean, look, you can be efficient and tactical with a gun that really doesn't have a time frame, but the way they do it and the way they hold their guns, the way they chamber, the way they uh, respond to different attacks, it can feel too modern. So we had to make sure it gave you that flavor but yet not too much of it. So it's kind of weird because you kind of had to hold back a little on purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you said gun fu. Can you tell us what gun fu is? Okay. Uh, gun fu is something I would say was invented with the John Wick franchise or Keanu Reeves. Uh, you can say he's the master of it now. It's basically where someone gets up close with gunplay and yet uses martial arts with it at the same time. When when an actor takes on a character, their personality, their backstory, is all of that incorporated into their fighting style? Like in the first episode, does Frankie fight differently from, from Yen? And does that tell us something about their personalities? What what does it tell us? Uh, yes, that definitely takes a, should I say, a forefront storytelling aspect to how they fight. I mean, look, with Frankie being a former soldier, uh, we wanted to make sure that played into it. You know, that seeing he was good with guns, seeing he can handle knives, seeing he could respond under pressure and uh, be a leader at the same time, but also learn how to survive. <clears throat> now, Yen, she's a firecracker, you know. But the great thing about uh, Kate, who played Yen, she actually has a, a style in a background in Muay Thai, you know. So even though that's not in the script, anytime an actor or actress comes into play with some type of martial art background, if it's not totally contradictory to the time, we try to take that and use it as an asset. When you're doing this level of stunts, how many times are people hurt on set? <laughs> uh, we were fortunate. Nobody walked away with any major injuries. I mean, there's always the sore muscles. There's always a bruise here and there. Um, somebody could accidentally get hit in the chest or something a little harder than expected. But, you know, no, nobody walked away having to go to the hospital, need a medic or anything like that. So we were very fortunate. But that comes from having great rehearsals and trusting your dance partner because it is a dance. You yeah. go left, I go right. You go forward, I go backwards. So once you learn that rhythm over and over, then they become actors, even if they're stunt people. And now they run it like a line, like you don't step on someone's line while they're speaking, trying to deliver uh, you know, dialogue. So it's the same thing with a fight scene. It's, it's trust and repetition. Larnell, lots of adrenaline in, in this series so far. And I can't wait to watch the conclusion. Thank you very much for talking to us today. No worries. Thank you for your time. Hopefully you enjoy the rest. Arnel Stovall is the action director for The Continental. Episode two dropped on Prime yesterday. I played the prince in King John, the Shakespeare play, at the local institute. And at the end of it, I got a standing ovation. And I thought, who needs homework? <laughs> Your who needs this? I'm, I'm home. This is it. 
That's David McCollum explaining how he decided on a career as an actor. David McCollum died in New York on Monday at the age of 90. His first big role was in The Great Escape in 1963, alongside Steve McQueen, Richard Attenborough, and some of the greatest actors to ever grace the screen. You fill these bags with the dirt from the tunnel. Then, wearing them inside your trousers, you wander out into the compound where you pull these strings in your pockets. A year later, he rose to heartthrob status, starring in the television series The Man from Uncle. I am Ilya Kuryakin. I am also an enforcement agent. Like my friend Napoleon, I go and I do whatever I am told to by our chief. But more recently, David McCollum is remembered for his role as Donald Ducky Mallard, the coroner in NCIS. I received a call from a man claiming to be a lawyer. He said he had information about a member of my family. I suggested that we meet at the coffee shop around the front there. What kind of information? Well, actually, he didn't have any. His castmates loved him, and so did his fans. But acting wasn't David McCollum's only talent. Both of his parents were classical musicians, and he grew up playing the oboe. And in the 1960s, back when he was a heartthrob with a Beatles haircut, he recorded four easy-listening jazz albums, and one of them is pretty legendary. This is The Edge from his album A Bit More of Me. Does that sound familiar? Let's see if this helps. It's the one and only Eagle Double G. Snoop Dogg. You know what happened with the D R E. Yes, David McCollum's song "The Edge" went on to become one of the most iconic hip hop samples in history used by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg in their 1999 hit, The Next Episode. And that's not even the only time it was used. According to the website Who Sampled, The Edge has been used at least 43 times by people including Jazzy Jeff, Kendrick Lamar, and John Legend. It's even been sampled by Kevin Federline, but you have to look that up yourself. So while we remember David McCullum for his incredible acting career and for being such a great Ilya Kuryakin, let's also remember the music he helped create. Still to come on day six, the Ukraine offensive continues with no decisive breakthrough. 
what lies ahead for the winter months. Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. We're going to stay here until hell freezes over till we get a just deal. And, and we're, not going to get, we're not afraid. We're not going to waver. We're going to stick this out. And stick it out, they did. This week saw the end of the longest Hollywood writer's strike since the 80s. After 148 days on the picket lines, the Writers Guild won several concessions from the studios, including pay increases, residuals from streaming, and limits on the use of AI. The actor's strike, though, is still on. Now we got to really commit, because now we're out here on our own, and now we're fighting for our deal. They fought alone for a long time. We have to work harder than ever to get our deal. On top of that, SAG-AFTRA's branch of video game actors just voted to authorize a strike. And the results of a unionization vote by Disney's visual effects employees are expected as early as Monday. If they vote for the union, it would be just the second time that VFX workers have done that. The first time was earlier this month when the VFX workers at Marvel Studios voted unanimously to unionize. So a large group of us jumped on the Zoom together to watch the counting of the ballots in person. And it was super exciting and motivational to see our efforts coming to life. That's Alexandra Rebeck. She's a VFX coordinator at Marvel and a member of the newly minted union. If VFX (laughs) did not exist as a department, Movies would be comedies. They'd all be hilarious because people would be running around with half of clothes on. They'd be dangling on wires. There'd be green screens everywhere. People would be shooting nothing. They'd be screaming and running from nothing. I would say without VFX, Marvel wouldn't be Marvel. The VFX union problem is not a Marvel-specific problem. This is an industry-wide problem. Marvel just happens to be the first studio to take a huge step forward. We are a tight family, and it was easy for us to work together to make this big step. But hopefully this is just the start of many studios, and we'll all start working together to make some changes. I think the real issue and the reason that we want to unionize is just because there is so much work that goes into VFX that we do end up working some insane hours and some insane work weeks. Like, I think the longest I ever worked was 90 days in a row. And I have never heard of anyone else in any department, in anything, working like that. It's like the work suffers, but also when you're working 16-hour days, 75 days in a row, people start to break in a way that I've never experienced or seen before. There was one show where I remember I woke up in the middle of the night and I had like the cold sweats and I was shaking and I was like, I'm going to throw up. And I was like, what is happening to me? And I realized it's because all I do is work. And I was like, I don't leave the house. I haven't seen the sun in two months. I don't know who I am anymore. It's like, yeah, I love my work, but like that is too far. 
<laughs> and I know that that's rare and that doesn't happen, but that should not be allowed to happen. I think that's what the problem is. Like we need to have protections so that no matter what happens on a show, no matter what goes wrong with COVID or uh, rescheduling or who knows what, like nothing should be able to cause that kind of situation to happen again. There are a few things I would love to see in our first union contract. Uh, definitely overtime would be number one. The limit on how many days in a row you can work without like some kind of stipend of, you know, four times pay or something. And then healthcare would be great because, uh, you know, studios do offer healthcare, but it's kind of project to project based. And so that's not very stable for a lot of people. And then just like the the protections on set that everyone else has with like turnaround time so you make sure that you always have enough sleep before you come to work and that you have to have lunch so i think we're not asking for anything crazy if we just get what everyone else has already as like a basis standard starting point we're gonna be so happy because that already is just like oh my gosh can you imagine <laughs> I think that seeing Marvel unionize is a great first step because I feel like that's the studio that everyone imagines from the outside of like, oh my gosh, that's the hardest one. So I think showing that we were able to come together as a family and work together to get this movement started is a great step that will hopefully just keep trickling down through all the studios until everyone is able to kind of get on the same page. For people at other studios who have not started the unionizing process yet, I want you guys to know that it is way easier <laughs> than you think. You guys just need to work together, talk together, and if you want it bad enough, then you can make it happen. You just gotta start the process and get going. Disney's already on their way, so all we can say to them is, good job, you guys, keep it up, and you're gonna be like right behind Marvel soon. It's just so exciting. It's like, these are two huge studios, and if they can do it, then anyone can do it. So let's all do it. <laughs> Alexandra Reback is a VFX coordinator at Marvel Studios. Rolling into battle as night falls, Ukraine's army attacking in the east around Bakhmut, very close to where the Russians are. Heavy fighting in eastern and southern Ukraine continued this week. The Ukrainian army now starting to push forward. But the Russians are fighting back, firing flares to unmask the Ukrainians' advance and hit Kiev's forces. The Ukrainian military began its counteroffensive in June. And at the time, there was a widespread belief that the next few months leading into the fall would be crucial in determining the course of the conflict. So, to help us understand where things stand now, we're joined by George Barros. He is a Russia expert and geospatial intelligence analyst with the Institute for the Study of War. George, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. Thank you so much for having me. In the spring, as the counteroffensive began, we were told the next few months would be crucial. Those months are now behind us. Looking back, how would you grade the Ukrainian spring counteroffensive? 
Well, it's an interesting question because the counteroffensive never had a defined end date. Um, and although the counteroffensive has not gone as well as we would have expected it to have over the summer, the counteroffensive, in fact, it still continues. So it's difficult for us to say it failed or it is proceeding well because it will likely persist well into the fall. And if the Ukrainians have their way, they will likely try to bring it into a, a continuous offensive that will resume in a higher tempo in the spring. But when you say it has not gone as well as was expected, what do you mean by that? What are you talking about? Um, well, the Ukrainians uh, encountered stiffer defense than what they anticipated with their attacks going into southern Ukraine in Zaporizhia Oblast. Um, I think there were a lot of key factors that resulted with the Ukrainians taking on higher losses and not being able to conduct a rapid mechanized maneuver with tanks and armored personnel carriers and that sort of thing. And those come down really to three main factors. The first one is the Russians have air superiority. Mm -hmm. um, Western nations have not given Ukraine what they need to cont uh, contest the airspace or, or even have air superiority. So the Ukrainians already have a significant disadvantage there. The second thing has to do with the extent to which the Russians effectively use electronic warfare uh, to degrade Ukrainian uh, communication, coordination, and precision weapons. Mm -hmm. and then the third one is, of course, their field fortifications and the defense and depth that they established. The Russians actually mined more heavily than what the Russians doctrinally should. And that necessitated the Ukrainians to change their tactics. They abandoned large mechanized armored vehicle maneuvers in exchange for dismounted uh, foot mobile infantry to sort of needle their way through all the various different hmm. trenches and field fortifications and landmine fields and not risk uh, destroying a limited number of vehicles they have. And with that progress, the Ukrainians have actually, they've made gains, small gains, but going with this foot mobile approach uh, requires a much slower tempo, closer to the rate of, you know, maybe three to 500 meters a day, as opposed to what one could expect to get out of armored vehicle maneuver. But when you talk about the counteroffensive continuing, do you sense that there is momentum or initiative attached to the gains that the Ukrainians have made so far? Absolutely. Over the past three and a half months, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been very slow. But over the last two to three weeks, the tempo has picked up. Um, the Russians have established a defense in depth that spans about 20 to 30 kilometers mm -hmm. with these field fortifications. But very interestingly, the Russians have underutilized it and they've instead opted to maximally defend the best fortified, the best developed parts of the field fortifications. Mm -hmm. It's not evenly well fortified throughout that entire depth. And the Ukrainians have successfully breached a portion of the best prepared Russian defensive line close to a village in southern Ukraine called Verbove. And if the Ukrainians can successfully continue to widen that breach uh, and deepen their penetration in that sector, it can enable the Ukrainians to get past uh, the most thickly mined areas and the best defended areas to get into a deeper part that is not as well defended mm -hmm. and potentially where the Ukrainians will be able to, again, switch up tactics and their armored vehicles to go faster through that territory. So that's in the south. What about the fighting in Bakhmut? Because that's ongoing and Russians and Ukrainians have been fighting for control of that city for months. What does it say to you that neither side seems to have been able to gain control there? Yeah, it's not actually about territorial control of the city. The Ukrainians have successfully leveraged their fights around Bakhmut in order to pin a tremendous amount of Russian forces that otherwise, had they not been pinned, would be available to create a strategic reserve 
that the Russians could use to conduct a counterattack to decisively defeat what the Ukrainians are trying to do in the south. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russians have four airborne divisions um, and they have four separate airborne brigades and the Ukrainians have fixed elements of two of those divisions and three of those four brigades. And they've actually greatly improved their chances of having that successful uh, breakthrough and penetration in the south that they're striving towards by denying uh, those forces the ability to sit in the rear and be prepared to defeat the Ukrainians if they achieve that operational breakthrough. U.S. Abrams tanks arrived in Ukraine this week. What does that mean strategically and, and symbolically when we, when we look at where Ukraine stands now compared to, say, this time last year? Um, it, well, it's a very small quantity of tanks. It's, uh, it's 31 tanks. And 31 tanks are not going to make a substantial difference um, at that size or scale. Um, I think it sends a good positive message. Uh, it's unfortunate that the Abrams tanks were not deployed earlier so they could participate in some of the fighting that occurred over the summer, but better late than never. Um, but the requirement to fill is much higher than just uh, the 31 tanks. Do you believe that the Western commitment to this conflict and the U.S. commitment is greater now than it was this time last year? And will that change the way fighting goes on through the fall and winter? It's definitely lower than it is now. And that's unfortunate because right now we're seeing uh, Putin reap the, the fruits of some of the disinformation and information operation seeds that he's been planting. Mm-hmm. Um, our institute, the Institute for the City of War, has a hypothesis that the Kremlin might have actually ordered the Russian military to not take one step back, uh, to incur more military losses than necessary for a successful defense in order to keep the map changes small Mm. in order to support information operation that the Ukrainians can't do this and they cannot win. If the Russians are successful at manipulating information and at at forming the the, the kind of way the war is seen and, and, and propagating this idea of an impasse, what about strategically? How strong is their position militarily at this moment? Uh, bottom line, not good. Um, the Russian military has largely been destroyed and reconstituted with lower quality, mobilized, and conscript forces. They're no longer the tip of the spear of, of the most professional forces that eventually went into Ukraine. Hmm. Um, and we assess that the Russians do not currently have a strategic reserve uh, that, that they can use to defeat the Ukrainians. The Russians, nonetheless, still continue finding ways to get uh, bodies into boots and getting those to the front line. Now, the other thing that I'd add is that the Russians have had to conduct lateral redeployments because ideally the Russians would have a prepared reserve already lurking in the breach locally that they could commit as opposed to having to pull a unit far away uh, and then redeploy it to support a crisis area. Looking forward, winter is coming. How will the coming cold temperatures change the direction of the war? That's a great question. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about um, winter and how that impacts combat operations. There's a popular misconception that fighting will stop during the muddy fall season, and then it might pick up again in the winter when it freezes over. And generally, that's true, but it doesn't mean that ipso facto, just because you get fall rain and fall mud means that fighting stops. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainians last year continued their fight throughout the fall, and the the fight for Bakhmut never stopped during the winter as well. But the tempo will decrease. Um, The Ukrainians' key challenge for this upcoming fall and winter season is going to be ensuring that they continue to maintain what we call the military initiative. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially they dictate the place and time of the fight so that the Russians don't actually get the opportunity to be the one to 
uh, make those decisions. It's essentially who gets to express agency. Ideally, the Ukrainians will be the ones making decisions, forcing the Russians to respond, and in so, with good campaign design, forcing the Russians to pick from a series of a buffet of bad options, as opposed to the Russian command being able to take the initiative, make decisions, and force the Ukrainians to respond. Um, we anticipate that tempo will drop, but the Ukrainians have signaled very clearly that they continue to fight uh, and that they would like to hold the initiative uh, consistently throughout fall, winter, and into spring 2024. And really, this is the grand thesis that I, I present to you today, which is the spring 2023 counteroffensive, while slow and not as we would have hoped over this summer, is actually not over, and it very well can continue into spring 2024. George, thank you very much for talking to us. It was very illuminating. Thank you very much for having me, Brent. Have a great rest of your day. George Baros is a Russia expert and a geospatial intelligence analyst with the Institute for the Study of War. Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the headlines, our weekly quiz. Three rifts linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the rifts, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. That's the Martin with On an Evening in Roma, Luna Lee and What You're Thinking, and Sam Smith with Man I Am, and Andrew Grin of Montreal guessed the headline that we were looking for. Women asking men how often they think of the Roman Empire takes off on social media, and everybody has a theory about why. Congratulations, Andrew. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day six tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day six. from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfu Tedessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiuk. Our senior producer is Gord West McCott. And I'm Brent Bambury. 
It's one day to Jimmy Carter's 99th birthday, three days to the Manitoba election, and seven days till we meet again on day six. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.